0: And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark you, your sons, your wife Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Father, we thank you for your word to us, and we pray now that you would work it into our hearts. May we see all that you have for us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, as with... um, other times in the year when you come to familiar passages, you face this at Easter and at Christmas, and you think, what is new? What are we going to hear differently? And the flood is, no, is really no different because some of us are more familiar with the details of the flood account than we are with some of the other major stories in Scripture because we've heard this since we were kids. Isn't the mural in the nursery of the, of the animals, right? I mean, how many churches have that mural or a version of it? Um, we're familiar with the flood, with the animals, with the ark, and with all of those details. And it's important. There are important details. There are things that uh, are important to understand or God would not have included it all. But instead of looking at all of those details that I think most of us are probably fairly familiar with, I want us to look more at what God did in salvation in the ark, God's saving work. And we can start by asking, is the story of the flood a story of God's judgment of sin, or is the story of the flood a story of God's saving work? And the answer, of course, is yes, (laughs) that's right, both, right? It is both. And you say, well, of course, Seth, it's both. Why is that a big deal? Well, I think it is important to understand that it is both. It is both a work of God's judgment and a work of God's salvation, Without judgment, there is no need for salvation. Uh, You can apply any sports illustration you want here if you want to think of what would a game be without judgment. What would a game be? It, It would be meaningless, right? It would be that game that when you were little kids that you invented and changed the rules constantly through the game. Or your older siblings actually did that. If you were the youngest like me, they changed the rules constantly to make whatever you were doing in their favor and you always Lose. I still can't play poker to this day because of the way my brother taught me how that game was supposed to work. Without judgment, there is no justice. And if you've ever been sinned against, you long for justice. If you've ever been broken by someone else's woundedness or seen someone else suffer, let alone your own suffering, you long for justice. Without justice, there is no restoration. And as I prayed this morning and I heard all of the "Mm -hmm," (laughs) mm-hmm, we long for restoration. We long for everything to be made right. And without restoration, there's no hope. So judgment matters. Judgment is important. Judgment is something that we can praise God for because it means something that brings us to salvation. So we can cheer for God's holy and righteous judgment. And yet we never want it to fall on us. We want to be on the end of mercy, right? We want to receive that which we don't deserve, which is why we not only need salvation, but we ought to be motivated to share of the hope that we have. There's a reason. Why? Because we've been recipients of that great mercy, Our lives ought to be lived differently because of the gospel's work in us. And I don't mean differently just in the sense that we're being conformed into the image of his son, but in the way that we make decisions, in the way that we make choices, lived differently for the gospel's sake. This is why we give generously. It's why we're ready to give an answer when the opportunity presents itself. It's why we live whole lives, meaning that we don't say one thing and do another, that we are not hypocrites, and that when we do sin, because, well, we're all hypocrites, but hopefully we're not hypocrites by definition, that when we sin, we repent, And people see us repent, and they hear us say, I'm sorry, and ask for forgiveness. And they see us live in the hope of the gospel. The gospel really ought to make us live differently. And so I want us to keep that in mind as we look both at the judgment and the salvation of God this morning, that both, necessary, point us to God's holiness, His grace, His mercy, and His love. And so beginning in verse 9, we see a phrase that's becoming familiar to us again, uh, and uh, these are the generations. These are the the bookmarks, as it were, throughout the book of Genesis, where Moses, as he wrote the book of Genesis, kind of, uh, these would have been chapter markers. These are sections. This is a new section. It's the section about Noah. Genesis is a history book. It's a history of beginnings. It's not just a history book, but it is that. It is the account of the beginnings. And so even as we look back into these earliest beginnings, one of the things that we notice is it sounds a little contemporary. Remember what we looked at last week with the evil in the world, the wickedness that everything, everyone did. And there's a sense that as we hear that, we we think to ourselves, this kind of resonates with us. We're seeing some of that today. The wickedness of man, verse 5, was great Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There are many wonderful things about living in this world, indeed many wonderful things about living in this country, and yet we can all agree that there are also things that we would call evil and wicked that are around us. And so, in a sense, we can understand why Noah felt the way that he did. Even though it's not articulated, uh, but this is important to understand, that, that Noah would have felt like an outcast that Noah would have felt like he didn't fit in. Uh, He is described in this evil and wicked generation as someone who is righteous and blameless. Now, that's admirable, right? We want to be righteous and blameless, but if if you're like me, when you come to passages like this, do you ever struggle with that? Or the passage in, in Psalm 18 that reads... I was, David wrote. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in His sight. I remember as a young guy, a teenager, reading that and thinking, David, we know what we know. Some of the stuff he did, right? How is he called righteous and blameless? And how is God rewarding him? Maybe you've struggled with that too. How does the Scripture handle this calling Noah? And we. You know where the story of Noah goes. We're going to see it in a few weeks. Noah wasn't perfect either. So how does the Bible call him righteous and blameless? How is anyone besides Jesus to be called righteous or blameless? Some argue that this is simply contrasting language, and it is that. It is a contrasting language to show that Noah was different than his contemporaries, that he lived life differently, that he was set apart, but it's simply so much more than just contrasting language. It's only part of the picture. What is actually being described here in these passages, both in the text in Genesis 6 and in the psalm that I read, among others, is that we are seeing people who live by faith. While it's quoted in the New Testament many times, this is from the the, the prophet Habakkuk in the Old Testament. I know many of you spend a lot of your quiet times in the book of Habakkuk. Um, Habakkuk 2.4... The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. The only way for sinners to be righteous is by faith in another. And this is what was describing Noah and David. Because no one besides Jesus has ever been and lived a truly righteous and blameless life. We know Romans 3, for there are none righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. That's an Old Testament quote. Right, Nothing has changed. The world is still the same today. And yet the Bible calls Noah, calls David, and so many others righteous. They are righteous because of their faith in God. It is an attributed righteousness. In Genesis 15, 6, we read of Abraham that he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So all the way back in the beginning with Abraham, this is how he was called righteous. It was a righteousness that was not his own. He was credited this righteousness because he trusted God. In other words, he was righteous before God because of God's redeeming work. Old Testament fathers and mothers looked forward to the coming Messiah, the coming Redeemer. They did it with eyes of faith. They had, they had very little I mean, we look back through all of the prophecies and think, oh, how did they miss it? All the details were there. Um, But, you know, the same could be said of us going forward, right? There there are things that we're missing too. They, They had only pieces of the puzzle. And yet they looked forward in faith that God would keep his promise all the way back from the beginning in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the serpent would be crushed by the seed of the woman. And they looked forward in that faith. You and I look backward in that faith to Jesus who was the Savior and Redeemer who did come. And it is the same Jesus that we both trust in. So that what is written in 2 Corinthians 5.21 is truly true of us. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. Let that mole in your heads for a bit. Let that truth seek deeply down. Do you recognize that about yourself? You, like Noah, like David, like Abraham, because of your faith in Christ, are righteous and blameless before God. What an incredible thought. Before our holy God, you stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Now, you may say, Seth, you've brought all that in. It doesn't say that here in the text. Well, let me take you to where it does say that. In Hebrews 11, verse 7, it says this, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. There's no other way. So, no, no he was a great guy, but he wasn't righteous in and of himself. He didn't... Check all the the tick boxes that God had set up and measure up and and tip the scales. He was a sinner who stood before God, condemned. And it is only by faith in God and the one who would, would come, Jesus, that he is counted righteous. I want you to be absolutely certain of the redeeming work of Christ on our behalf. But I also want you to understand that the work is not static In this sense, that it doesn't just change our legal status and stop. The redeeming work of Christ changes us who we are, changes us in the inside. We have not earned our righteousness in any way. We have not contributed one iota to this. It is a gift of God's grace completely. However, the free gift of God changes us. It doesn't just change our legal status. It changes us. Think of 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So while we are counted righteous before God, we are also sanctified, becoming blameless. And this is the other uh, qualifier, the other describer of Noah. Noah was called blameless in verse 9. And here, this is the idea of wholeness. In other words, Noah wasn't defined as a hypocrite. He wasn't duplicitous. He didn't say one thing and do another. Yes, he still sinned, but he battled sin. He didn't walk in sin. He turned from sin. And this is, this is the difference. You know, unbelievers often have used the excuse, I don't want to go to church because the church is full of hypocrites. The world's full of hypocrites. I've never met a person who wasn't a hypocrite. Uh, We're all hypocrites. We all say things and do other things. We all lie. We all twist the truth. We all manipulate. We all deceive. That's who we are as sinners. So the church is not unique to this. The difference for believers is that we turn from sin. We walk in repentance. We don't walk in sin. This is what defined how Noah lived in, in, in a blameless life. And this is what God is doing in each of our lives. He didn't save us simply to leave us as we are. He is changing us, sometimes ever so slowly, but the change is real and the change is deep. And let me say this about the need for community in our lives. One of the reasons why we need fellowship in the body is that sometimes we need that dear brother or sister who sees the change in our lives and looks to us and says, you're not the same. God is changing you. God's working in you. I need that. You need that. We need that. And the only way we can have that is in a real sense of community and in one anothering in each other's lives. We are being conformed into the image of his son. This is done in our lives in the same way it happened in Noah's. As he walked with God, we walk with God. The way that the words are ordered in the Hebrew actually puts God's name first, meaning the emphasis is on God. It can almost be interpreted God walked with Noah. In the sense that God was the leader, God was the initiator. God, Noah was simply a recipient of His grace, and the same is true for us. Again, I, I always get leery of illustrations because illustrations break down, they fail us, they can be misunderstood. But I couldn't help but thinking of the three-legged race in elementary school on field day. You remember when you know you did all those activities and you got all hot and sweaty, and yeah, just you know, uh, field day. Tied two legs together of two different people, one the inner leg, and you try... And what happens every time? Your tendency is just to take off running. But what that does is it cripples the whole operation and nobody gets anywhere. The only way to make that work is to work together in the sense of you, you, you take long strides slowly and you get to the finish line. Well, again, that, you know, again the, the illustration doesn't work completely. But the idea is that when we are walking against God, we stumble and we fall. But when we walk with God, we make great strides. And so for us to walk with God, what does that look like? It just, it, it, it's according to His Word. That's a fair way to understand how we are to walk with God. Scripture, like Second Peter 1.3, says that He's granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us into His own glory and excellence. In other words, God has not left us abandoned to figure this out. What does it mean to walk with God? You know, that if we have some kind of spiritual barometer or wind test that we're trying to figure out how to walk, we don't, we don't have to function like that. He's given us His Word. He's told us how to walk with Him. And so we're not ill-informed. And when we walk according to His Word, we can say with the psalmist that His Word is perfect, reviving the soul, that His Word is sure, making wise the simple, that his word is right, rejoicing the heart, pure, enlightening the eyes, true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much more than fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned in keeping them, there is great reward. So may we be a people then that who have as recipients of the gracious gift of God, of God to us in Jesus Christ be propelled in growth in that same grace wherein we walk with God according to his word as his righteous and blameless sons and daughters. That's the framework. Now we're going to go really fast to finish up in the last couple minutes the rest of what happens here in God's judgment and salvation. God makes it very clear. We already saw this some last week. It gets repeated here again in verses 11 to 17. This repetition of the corruption that was in the world. The corruption was multiplying, it was getting worse. And what's interesting is the word for corrupt, or if you have the ESV that's translated corrupt, is here four times in verses 11 to 13. In verses uh, 11 and 12, it describes all flesh, that all flesh have become corrupt. But the word appears a fourth time, although it's not translated in English, corrupt, but it appears in verse 13 and is translated to destroy. And here it is speaking of what God is going to do. The same word is used as what, the, what has become of the world, according to all flesh, been corrupted. God is now going to destroy or He's going to corrupt them. So there's a sense of almost poetic justice that Moses uses here. Now God is not a mean-spirited, sinfully vindictive judge. This is true and right judgment. I couldn't help but think of Romans 1 when I think of the fact that our sins become uh, the, the judgment themselves, where we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. God turns the, 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 the consequences themselves actually become a judgment. God's law was given to us as a good gift to guard and protect us. And any time we act against His law, in a sense, the sin itself becomes a judgment to us. We stand condemned. So the repetition then in this passage for the evil, for the wickedness, for the corruption uh, 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 by all flesh that we hear repeated over and over, God is making it clear here that He is not unjust in His judgment that we could not later come back and look and say, how, how could the Lord destroy the entire earth? How could he bring this flood, this horrible way to die, and just wipe out everything? He's making it crystal clear that his judgment is right and true. The flood was not selfishly vengeful. It was not a divine temper tantrum. It was a just reaction to the evil that had grown and multiplied among the human race. And so then God begins giving Noah the plans. What is the plan? Build a box. Build a big box. Build a box bigger than anyone then or since has ever built. Build Well, until Ken Ham built the one up in Kentucky. But build a big box. That's what the word ark, as far as we can tell, means. A chest. I don't know that it was quite as streamlined as the one in Kentucky seems to look. It was a big wooden box. 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high, and it was built to do one thing. Save. That that was what it was built to do. To save. It's interesting that the only other place this word, the Hebrew word for ark that is used here in Genesis 6, the only other place it is used is in Exodus one time to describe another ark. A little basket that the writer of Genesis as a baby was placed in and that was intended to do the same thing to save. When Noah was a baby and, and all boys you know that age were supposed to be killed, his mother and faith put him in this little wooden basket, and God saved his life. Pieces of wood held together by reeds bound around sealed with pitch, these two boxes, quite different in size, both brought salvation. By the hand of God. So the story of Noah is not about his righteousness and his obedience or his pedigree, but about a merciful God who is both judge and savior, the one who would both bring just justice, right justice, correct justice, and salvation. And that's where we see in verses 18 to 22 that he does this in the context of covenant. First mentioned in verse 18, this is the first time we see this word in Scripture, but it's repeated again and again. God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. You can't understand God very well if you don't understand this about Him. Apart from the covenantal picture of God, we can easily turn Him into a glory-hungry dictator or a detached but vengeful tyrant or some something on that spectrum, neither of which we could ever please. Apart from covenant, salvation can seem like it depends on our works. Apart from covenant, the leadership of a husband can seem like a misogynistic dictatorship that's an excuse for men to abuse and use their wives. Apart from covenant, sexual purity can seem like a cruel joke by the one who wired our bodies. Apart from covenant... Suffering can make us think that God has a sick sense of humor. Apart from covenant, trials can seem like hoops we have to jump through to appease an angry God. Covenant changes everything. Our whole way of understanding how God works and how to make sense of this life. In covenant, God establishes a relationship by making an oath. He is the source of the oath and the one who keeps the oath... In other words, he holds the whole thing together. And this is the beauty of the covenant. He binds together that which is apart, making something that is seemingly impossible. God takes that which is broken and weak and makes a plan for restoration and accomplishes the restoration, putting the whole thing back together and making it work. That is the beauty of how... Think, Noah... He, you know, he, he built the ark, and we, we think, oh, what a noble thing that he did. Did Noah know how to build the ark? Did Noah have the physical strength, the means, the determination, the help, the skill? No, all of this, the plan was God's from the very beginning. And even if you think of the little basket that saved Moses, it was, again, what mother would do that? It was her only hope, her last-ditch effort, and yet God accomplished what he would God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. And because He is God, we can rest in the fact that He is good and He does all things well. Because He is a covenant-keeping God, you and I can face anything no matter how difficult. So this matters in how we face our own lives. Noah, think of this. Over 100 years, construction lasted over 100 years. Of course, people lived longer back then. Same day, he gets up, Every day with the same outlook. Get up, cut down trees, debark trees, saw trees, put trees together, rinse, lather, repeat, right? Just the same thing over and over. If you've ever seen the movie Groundhog's Day, it was like that, getting up. And you have to wonder what he was thinking. Did I misunderstand God? You know, am, am I cr- Everybody else is saying I'm crazy. Am I crazy? Is this worth it? Why am I doing this? You know, The blisters aren't worth it. I look like an idiot. This is not the life I ask for. I'm not fulfilling my dreams and wishes. None of that, of course, is recorded in Scripture, but it doesn't take much of an imagination to wonder if those thoughts didn't go through Noah's head. But the reason that Noah could obey and keep obeying over and over again, even when things didn't make sense at all, is because he walked by faith, trusting a God who keeps his promises, a covenant-keeping God. God said, I will establish my covenant with you. And then he describes not only how this, this is not only for Noah, but this is for your wife, for your sons, for their wives, probably some grandchildren in the mix by this point. All would be saved. The covenant work of God is not just with individuals. It's with families, and it's not just with nuclear families. That's the normal way that God works. But God does this thing in the body of Christ where he makes us a family so that none of us are neglected. None of us are left out of this picture. He's creating a spiritual family, married, single, with or without children. None of us are excluded. In his amazing grace, he is knitting together a covenant family through which his kingdom is established on earth. So the ark is a story of salvation and a story of judgment, a story of Noah's obedience to God, a story of animals, a rainbow, restarting of the creation, but it is so much more. This is the story. The story of the great flood is one of a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God who preserves the line of promise through Noah so that the seed would crush the head of the serpent and would would one day be born. It was through the line of Noah that the promise came. The flood was not unjust. It was a righteous judgment against great evil and corruption, but this incredible judgment, the salvation of a family through which the hope of the promise would continue emerges. You may wonder whether your life matters, whether your days matter, or this stage of life, anything matters. You may wonder about all the what-ifs and imagine what could have been. You may live wondering about regrets and those not-so-proud moments. You may be looking ahead and, and imagining how life can ever be what you want. Hear me out when I say that in Jesus All of the promises of God find their amen. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians one twenty. All of the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ. And so that if we are in Christ, He is not just one who promises things far off in the future. The promise is here. The promise is now. He doesn't just promise a gift. He promises us Himself. And He gives us Himself because he is the ark that saves. In verse 16, God told Noah to place a door on the side of the ark. And years later, when Jesus stood on earth, he said, I am the door in John 10. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. The ark saved Noah and his family and the animals. But since then, as far as we know, it has rotted and turned to dust. Jesus, however, stands ready to save permanently, perfectly and plentifully no matter what your history no matter what your sins are no matter what your regrets are jesus is the door there's no other way there is no other hope of salvation come to him and trust in him today and christian you too remember your sin your sorrow your trials your temptations your regrets and your 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 dreams are all held together and redeemed by our great Savior. Nothing that passes through His hands is without purpose. Nothing can arm you beyond repair. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Let's pray.